We'll turn to Daniel chapter 3 in your Bible. In Daniel chapter 3, we're going to look at the entire chapter uh, this day. And the last time we uh, met with uh, King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, uh, he had a, a most unusual experience. He was impressed with Daniel's God because Daniel's God was able to do something that no one else could do. Daniel's God was able to tell him what he dreamt. And Daniel's God was able to tell him the interpretation to that dream. And Nebuchadnezzar um, heard what Daniel had to say about this dream that he had. You remember that dream where he had a dream of a statue and it had a head of gold. And the thing that I think Nebuchadnezzar probably uh, captured most closely in his heart was this phrase. Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. I think Nebuchadnezzar liked that. Because Nebuchadnezzar was uh, pretty full of himself. He was uh, a tyrant, actually. And, uh, and so he heard that. He held on to that. And he replied to Daniel with these words in chapter 2, verse 47. He said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. And so King Nebuchadnezzar took Daniel and he promoted Daniel to be the ruler over the entire province of Babylon. And so all of that capital city area, Daniel was the ruler of that area. And Daniel's friends likewise were promoted, and they became different kinds of administrators in that province. Well, fast forward a couple of years, a number of years, uh, probably about nine, maybe ten years, and King Nebuchadnezzar has successfully expanded his empire now, Babylon, the city Babylon, is located uh, in modern-day Iraq, real close to where uh, the Euphrates and the Tigris rivers almost meet. They don't quite meet, but that's where the capital city of Babylon is. His empire spread all the way uh, into Syria. He had conquered all of what we'd say modern-day Syria is, all of modern-day Israel, uh, all the way to the border of Egypt. And his influence was so great that Egypt was, in a sense, subject to him. And so it, and his, his empire extended the other way, all the way into modern-day uh, Iran, right next to the border of Iran. So he had a huge empire, and his empire had been expanded. He was very successful. But all of this ex expansion came at a cost. And we don't know this from what uh, Scripture tells us, but from other extra-biblical sources, we know that most recently in chapter 3, by the timing of chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar had experienced a rebellion there within his capital city, and he had put it down. And so there was turmoil in the kingdom, not only there, but as we see in, modern, as we see in history, that when a kingdom becomes very expansive, a lot of times there begins to be rumblings on the outer edges of the kingdom. Those people think, oh, the king's far away. We don't have to pay tribute to him. And that's what began to happen with Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar, he had to travel to the westernmost parts of his kingdom to remind those people that, yes, you are going to pay me tribute, and if you don't, off with your heads. And so Nebuchadnezzar was feeling some of the growing pains of his, of his kingdom, and a lot of people wanted that power that he had. And so Nebuchadnezzar had probably not forgotten Daniel's dream, especially the part that called him the head of gold. Now here's the deal. 
Nebuchadnezzar didn't just want to be the head of gold. He wanted to be the whole statue. And he wanted the whole statue to be of gold. He did not like the idea of another kingdom coming after him and destroying him. He didn't like the idea of, of God's kingdom coming in, the large stone that crushed the entire statue and taking over and filling the whole earth. He wanted to fill the earth, whole earth with his kingdom. He wanted his kingdom to last forever. And so Nebuchadnezzar remembered that part for Daniel said, you are the head of gold, but I think he forgot the most important part. Nebuchadnezzar had forgotten his reaction to Daniel. For he said that your God is a God of gods. Your Lord is a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. Nebuchadnezzar had forgotten about Daniel's God. He liked the glory, but he forgot where the glory came from. You know, I think for you and me, even as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ... We have to be on guard against having spiritually selective memories. I've seen um, many times on Facebook or in conversations with people, uh, people claiming the promises of God, remembering the promises of God, and absolutely we should. But it's much less likely to hear people remembering the commands of God. I mean, we'd rather hear what God has obligated himself to us for rather than what our obligations are to God. We have a tendency to have selective memories, and we need to be on guard against that. Nebuchadnezzar, I think, had that. He liked the idea about himself having, um, being the head of gold on the statue, but he wanted the whole statue to be gold, and he wanted it to be him. And he forgot about his obligation to give honor and glory and praise to Daniel's God. And so he wants to be the entire statue of gold according to his dream, so much that that's what he did. He made a statue entirely plated with gold. We read in Daniel chapter 3, verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits, and its width 6 cubits. And he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. What's a cubit? A cubit is about a foot and a half. This statue was 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. That's not real wide for such a tall statue. Uh, a lot of scholars think it, it looked like this next image right here, where it was a large pillar, maybe with a bust or maybe with an entire statue up on top of it. And the whole thing was plated with gold. And so this thing could be seen. You think about a, a building that's nine stories high. That's pretty big. That's how tall this thing was. It could be seen for miles. And so he made this, this tremendous statue. Um, the statue most likely was an image of him. Why do I think that? Because in, in verse 19, we're going to see something where Nebuchadnezzar, it talks about Nebuchadnezzar's face. He gets really mad. And his face gets so contorted. He gets so angry. It's, it's causing wrinkles. I mean, he's just really upset. The kind of upset that you get sometimes with the kids. He's that upset. He's really upset at, at uh, these three men. Well, the word face there is the exact same word that's used for the word statue. And so it very well could be that this statue was an image of him in one form or fashion. 
In fact, the word statue is used ten times in this entire chapter, and it's the same word as the word face there in verse 19. And so this, this statue, by the way, whose idea was this? Did someone come up with this idea and say, hey, Nebuchadnezzar, I've got a great idea. Here's, here's what you need to do. I don't think so. I think this statue was the brainchild of Nebuchadnezzar himself. The reason I think that is that as we read through this chapter, pay attention to how many times it says that Nebuchadnezzar set up this statue. It says it nine times. The word set up is there nine separate times. It's overkill almost, but it's there for a reason. It's emphasized for a reason. And so Daniel, if you remember, in chapter 2, told Nebuchadnezzar that his kingdom would be replaced, but Nebuchadnezzar has, a, has other ideas. He's going to directly challenge that dream that he had. This statue is a direct challenge to the dream. Daniel says, you're the head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar says, no, I'm not. I'm the whole statue. And I'm 90 feet tall. I'm the real deal. And so Nebuchadnezzar, this is a direct challenge to Daniel's interpretation. It's a challenge to God. Nebuchadnezzar's not just going to be the head of gold, conquered by other human kingdoms. He's certain, certainly not going to allow some stone to come off of a mountain and, and destroy his kingdom, a spiritual kingdom, destroy his earthly kingdom. He puts this statue in the middle of a plain, not out there close to a mountain where an actual stone might, might crush it. He puts it out in the middle of a plain. He's not going to let anything destroy his kingdom. He's going to make sure that everything he has and everything that that statue represents will endure to the very end. And so he set up this statue, it says in verse 1, in the province of Babylon. Where is this? This is what Scripture calls Shinar. We read about this, I think, in chapter 1. Shinar is the exact place where Nimrod, in Genesis chapters 10 and 11, we, we learn about Nimrod chapter 10, and then chapter 11 of Genesis, Nimrod built this great tower, the Tower of Babel. And so this is the exact same place. Nebuchadnezzar has the same attitude that Nimrod had. Nimrod was a tyrant who wanted power and glory for himself. And Nebuchadnezzar is the exact same way. He's a tyrant that he wants power and glory for himself. So he sets up this huge statue, verse 2. The Nebuchadnezzar, the king, sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, had set up. King Nebuchadnezzar had conquered many nations by this, by this point. Every one of these nations, think about this dynamic, every one of these nations has its own culture, has its own language. How in the world is he going to keep this conglomeration of nations together? What's going to be the glue that holds them all together? It's not going to be the force of his personality. It might have to be the force of his army. That keeps them together. And so he needs something that's going to unify his kingdom. And so he orders all of the officials, and we have a big list of them here, all of the officials from every part of his kingdom to participate in the, in the dedication and the worship of this golden statue. This statue will be the spiritual glue that will unite his kingdom together. That's what he thinks in his mind at least. And then we read in verses 3 through 6, Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces 
were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And so you can imagine the scene that's about to occur, that every instrument known to man is just going to blare. And it's, going, it's not going to be beautiful. It's just going to be noise, but you can't miss it. And when you hear the, hear the noise, you better bow down. And if you don't bow down and worship the golden statue, then you're going to be thrown into the, into the furnace. So next to this, close by, to the statue, there's this furnace. And this furnace uh, was probably the same furnace that was used to help build uh, the statue. It probably looked something like this up on the wall. It likely had a large opening up at the top where fuel could be just dumped in at the top. And then at the bottom would be a smaller opening, and that's where the bricks that were being burnt or the, the, inside the kiln, if you will, they could be taken out and cooled down and placed and, and build the statue, and then the whole statue would be plated with gold. And so this furnace is burning. It's active. In fact, we find out later that these three men are going to be thrown into, they're going to fall down into this furnace. And so they're, they're thrown down from the top, and, uh, and they're, they're bound, and they have no escape. Verse 7, we read, Therefore, at that time, when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Literally, it says, as they were hearing the noise, they were falling down. In other words, these people couldn't fall down and worship quick enough. They were scared to death. These people were basically sheep. These people had no minds of their own. They were almost like mindless robots. Just, yes, sir. And so they just bowed down. They did whatever the Nimrod told them to do. They did whatever the tyrant told them to do. Well, then we read in verse 8. For this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. The Chaldeans were most likely astrologers. And the Chaldeans hated the Jews, especially these Jews, these three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Why? Because these three guys have become their bosses. And if there's anything that people hate, it's their boss. Boy, I could do a better job than my boss, people think. If I ever get a chance to stick it to my boss, I'm going to stick it to him. Well, this is their chance. They're going to stick it to these three Jews. And so they brought charges against these three men. They were going to get rid of them. And listen to what they said in verses 9 through 12. They responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. 
how dedicated they are. Oh, you, you, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. They're basically repeating everything the king had commanded. Just to remind them in case you forgot. Verse 12, they said, There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. Now, just as an aside, why wasn't Daniel named? I mean, did Daniel bow down and worship this false image? No. Most likely, he, he uh, wasn't named because he was probably in the king's court. He wasn't out there, on the, out there in the field. He was there in the palace because he was the king's right-hand man. And so he wasn't with everyone else. But these three men were out in the field, and they, as the uh, Chaldeans said, they've disregarded you. This is a personal affront to you. You should be offended, O king. They've disregarded you. They made their charges personal with King Nebuchadnezzar. He's ba they're basically saying these guys are plotting a rebellion. Because if they don't worship your God... Probably trying to get people to rally around them. And King, you just had a rebellion not too long ago, didn't you? These guys are next. They're after your throne. You better watch it. You better get rid of these guys. Remember what you promised. You said you'd throw them in the fiery furnace. Well, verses 13 and 14. We read, but the Nebuchadnezzar in rage and anger. He had an anger problem. He gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? He asked the question, Is this true? In other words, the king doesn't trust the Chaldeans. He can see right through them. He knows these guys are probably just out for their jobs. And he, so he, he's going to give them another chance. He said, is this actually true? And we read in verse 15, the king says to them, Now, if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And then he asked a question. And this is the question that is the center part of the entire story. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? What would you do? Well, it's easy for us to say, oh, I'd be just as strong as Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. But I think there'd be a lot of Christians today, they'd go ahead and they'd bow down. In their heart, they would say, I don't really mean it, God. I'm not real serious about this, God. You and me, God, we know better. But I just don't want to get in trouble. I don't want to be burnt to a crisp. 
And so I'm not going to disobey the king. So would you give in? Or would you stand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they know what's required of them. They were taught this as young, as young people. They know the commandments. I mean, it's part of the Ten Commandments. You shall not worship idols or serve them. And so the king asked them a question. After he's giving them this one last chance, he said, What God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Do you hear what Nebuchadnezzar is actually saying with that question? He's saying, my hands are greater than, the God, than any God's hands. Nebuchadnezzar is basically saying, I'm greater than any God because I'll destroy you. And there's no God in the world, there's no God in heaven that can rescue you. And so in verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. I love that. You've asked us a question. What God can deliver us out of your hands? They say, that's not even for us to answer. We're not going to answer that. That's up to God. And then they continue. Verses 17 and 18. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire... And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. The issue is not whether or not they will bow down. That's what Nebuchadnezzar wants the issue to be. Are you going to bow? That's not the issue to them. The issue... It's whether or not God will deliver them. They've already made up their minds. They're not going to bow down. So the only question left to be answered is, will God deliver us? And their answer is, we don't know. We know he's able, but we don't know if he will. You know, it's not so much, this story is not so much about the courage of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but it's about God's power and their simple trust in God's power. If it is God's will for them to be delivered, then they will be delivered. But if God's will is for them to suffer, if God's will is for them to die, then they will suffer and die, died, but they will have been faithful to God. In other words, they don't obey God because of what they will get out of it. They're not assured of anything. They don't know whether they're going to be rescued or not. They simply obey God for obedience's sake. Let me ask you a question. How many times do we, when we're left with a a question of whether to obey God or not, do we question whether it's going to pay off for us? How many times do we wonder, is it going to be worth it for me to be faithful to God this time? Or am I going to have to pay a price? I've heard people say, I've heard believers say, I know what God wants me to do, but I don't want to do that. It might cost me too much. 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego weren't like that. Their attitude was, I know what God wants me to do. And I'm simply going to do it. And it doesn't matter what it costs me. Even if it costs me my life, I'm going to obey God. We need to have that kind of attitude that says, I will obey God no matter what. No matter what the consequences are, no matter what the cost is, I'm going to obey God. I think many times there's a trauma that is accompanied by our faithfulness to God. In other words, if you decide to be faithful to God, it might get some people mad. It might cause drama and trauma in your life. If you decide to obey God and be faithful to Him, there might be consequences that come upon you. It may cost you financially. It may cost you physically. It may cost you emotionally. It may cost you a relationship. But if you decide to be faithful to God, you ought to be faithful simply for faithfulness' sake. Well, As you can imagine, Nebuchadnezzar was not pleased. We read in verses 19 and 20, that Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath, and his facial expression was altered toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. His face was contorted. He answered, by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. Crank that thing up. Crank that heat up all the way, basically, is what he said. He commanded certain valiant warriors, his best warriors, valiant warriors, certain warriors. He commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. There wasn't going to be a trial at a future date. They're standing before the king. He gets his best officers, his best army officers, and he says, tie them up now. Tie every last one of them up. He's in such a hurry to kill them that he doesn't even strip them of their clothes. Look at verse 21. Then these men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, and their other clothes, and were cast in the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. Here these guys are, bound. There's no way for them to escape. Thrown into the the top of this blazing furnace. Verses 22 and 23. For this reason, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace had been made extremely hot, the flame of the fire slew those men who had carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire, still tied up. At this point in the story, it's a tragedy. Because there's only three people in the entire capital who are faithful to God. And the three people that are faithful to God, the three heroes, looks like they're about to be killed. This looks like a terrible tragedy. The only ones faithful to God are the ones who suffer. How many times have we heard that? Have we seen that? That the ones who are the most faithful are the ones who are hurt the most. Isaiah chapter 43 verse 2 says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. This is the Lord speaking. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame 
burn you. But that's figurative, right? I mean, that's just language. That's not real, is it? King Nebuchadnezzar, he wants to see these guys burn so much that he leaves his palace. He goes out to watch the execution, and he's the one peering into that lower part of the furnace to watch these guys burn. I mean, he's, he's pretty hot with anger in his own heart. And so he's looking at the bottom of this furnace. Let's see what we read in verses 24 and 25. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and stood up in haste. He said to his high officials, was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? They replied to the king, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. These three guys we threw in there, they're alive. My best soldiers, they were standing outside the furnace, and they got burned to death. These three guys are in the furnace. They're alive, and not only are they alive and well, there's a fourth one there. Who is this? Is this an angel? Is this the God of Daniel protecting him? Protecting Daniel's friends, I should say. The fourth man, notice what didn't happen. The fourth man didn't kick that door down and lead them out of the, out of the furnace. The fourth man stood right in the midst of them protecting them from the flames all around. We don't know for certain if the fourth man was simply an angel from the Lord or whether it was the angel of the Lord, meaning Christ himself in a pre-incarnate form. I'd be inclined to think that that's who it was. But we do know that this was a miracle of God and that there was another presence in that furnace that was protecting these men. Verses 26 and 27, the Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire. He responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's high officials noticed this is all the same people that were the quickest ones to, to bow down. They were the eyewitnesses. The ones who were the most eager to bow down to this golden statue were the very ones who were the first eyewitnesses to the safety and to the power of God over Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, nor was the hair of their heads singed, nor were their uh, trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. This was incredible. How protected do you have to be to not even have the smell of fire? When you go to a campfire, what do you do when you get home? You get out of your clothes and you wash them. Why? Because it stinks. You're stinking up the car driving home. You're stinking up everything. You don't want to sit on your nice furniture because you smell like the fire. These guys didn't even smell like the fire. 
And it was, it's, it was as if they weren't even near the fire, but there they were. They were right in the midst of it. And so God has shown King Nebuchadnezzar who really was in charge. It wasn't one of Babylonian's God, one of the Babylonian gods. The Babylonian gods weren't in charge. It wasn't King Nebuchadnezzar who made this broad proclamation, who's going to deliver you out of my hands. But it was the Most High God. He was the one who was in, uh, who, who was in charge. Let me ask you a question. Why didn't God just sort of snuff out the fire? God could have done that. Why didn't God sort of miraculously open the doors and they fall out? God could have done that. But God wanted them to be in the fire, yet kept safe. Perhaps God wanted to make this deliverance as obvious as possible to all the eyewitnesses. For there would be no other explanation. But God, the Most High God, did this. Here's the message for you today. When you're oppressed, when you're suffering, God is able to deliver you out of even the most dire circumstances he's in control god is the one in control when there's no way out god can make a way out when there's no relief god can bring you relief god can do anything that god sets himself to do we can pray we can ask in the end god will do what he will do it is our job to be faithful to him no matter what Brother, God seeks to bring us relief in our suffering. Brother, God seeks to bring us an escape where there's no escape. It is our job to be faithful to God. And it may be our testimony in eternity beyond this life that we were relieved by God when we needed His relief. It may be our testimony that we found an escape that came from God when there was no escape by human sight. Or it may be our testimony that we suffered and died because there was no escape and there was no relief brought to us, but we suffered and died faithfully. It is up to God what circumstances happen to us. It is up to you to decide whether you're going to be faithful to God. We have an obligation to refuse to serve other gods. In Psalm 34, verse 7, we read, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Psalm 91, verse 10, we read, No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. Jesus himself talked about a most incredible suffering, a terrible, terrible fate. He said, The Son of Man will send forth his angels. And they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. We have an escape, an ultimate escape, and it's an escape from the fire of hell. And Jesus provides the only escape from that furnace of fire. It is our job to be faithful to Christ. We read in verses 28 and 29, Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, and here finally he remembers God again. He said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, 
who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's command and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap, inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. The king made a decree, and the net effect of this decree is that Jews, the children of God, the elect of God, were now able to worship God freely, without fear of punishment. Here you have a story that has been told in many times and many forms throughout uh, our own history, throughout the history of, uh, of Christians and throughout the history of God's faithful, where it took someone or here a few someones to be willing to stand on the faithfulness of God and be willing to suffer the consequences of it before laws could be changed. These men were willing to suffer the consequences of being faithful to God. And God so worked it in such a way as to bring a measure of religious liberty to all of his people. We read in verse 30, Then the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. I would say to you this day that one of the lessons that we have to learn from this story is a lesson to flee from idolatry. You know, the gods in our society, the false gods in our society, are much different than the Babylonian gods, but these gods that we experience, these gods that we're tempted by, these gods that we um, see destroy other people's lives that are just as destructive as the Babylonian gods. Our society tells us to pursue pleasure and to pursue wealth and to pursue power. But pursuing those things, if your life as a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are pursuing pleasure and wealth and power, guess who you're not pursuing? You're not pursuing God. And so it comes to a point where you have to make a choice. Which God will you serve? Jesus told us to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. There are some countries that demand absolute obedience to the state. And Christians living in those countries risk fines, they risk imprisonment, they risk even death for being faithful to the Lord. Our country is becoming more like that. First Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 14, we're told, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the, the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the re- revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you i'd ask you this day to shore up in your heart a willingness to be faithful to god to the end no matter what i'm going to be faithful to god because i know that my god 
can deliver. 